Judges chapter 1. Judges chapter 1. Let's turn together this morning. I just want to speak this morning on facing the chariots in the valley. Facing the chariots in the valley. Judges chapter 1. Just let's ask the Lord's help this morning as we as we come to his word. Father, in thy name we pray for your blessing upon your word. Lord, we ask for the Holy Ghost to anoint us afresh this morning, both to preach and to hear your precious word. Lord, give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Lord, we are careful in everything to give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Everyone said it this morning. Amen. Judges chapter 1, verse 17. Judges 1 and 17. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they slew the Canaanites that inhabited Zephath and utterly destroyed it. And the name of the city was called Horma. Also Judah took Gaza with the coast thereof, and Ascalon with the coast thereof, and Akron with the coast thereof. Verse 19 says, And the Lord was with Judah, and he drove out the inhabitants of the mountain, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley, because they had chariots of iron. You know, these were real chariots, uh, these chariots of iron that God's people had come up against in the valley. And these, uh, in the Old Testament, these chariots of iron were fierce uh, apparatus and weaponry of the enemy against the people of God. In the New Testament, for us in a spiritual sense, chariots of iron are simply strongholds, spiritual strongholds. How many people believe in strongholds? Praise the Lord. Amen. But our weapons are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. The chariots of iron are fortified places. They're weaponry of the enemy's kingdom. Uh, they're great power. They're great strength against the people of God. And so these strongholds, in, in many respects, Judah had come into the valley and they were not able to drive out the inhabitants, particularly because there were strongholds in the valley. There were chariots of iron. And I just want to bring an introduction to the book of Judges again. I know it did a few weeks ago. But, you know, in this, we understand that in everything, God is the same. The Bible tells us in Malachi 3 and 6, For I am the Lord, I change not. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the God on the mountains, and He's the God in the valleys. He never changes. God is always the same. He's always loving every attribute of God. What that means to us is that every attribute of God, He is holy. He is just. He is always holy. He is always just. He is always victorious. He's always merciful. He is always gracious. He is always kind. He is always loving. He is always God. He never changes. There is no shadow of turning with Him. He is the Lord and He does not change. And in this context of the book of Judges, we see that Israel have had just previously two great leaders. The first one being Moses, who is a type of Christ. So was Joshua. And in that time, God had brought a mighty deliverance to Israel, brought them out of Egypt, delivered them by His great hand, brought them through the wilderness. And then we see the handover from Moses to Joshua. And Joshua, again, a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is salvation. Joshua leads them into the great conquest to take the hills and the valleys of Canaan, a land that had been promised to them. And under that leadership, they, they, they enter into that land of, of promise and they possess the land and they see great victories in God. They see the Jerichos come down. They, they see the great hand of the Lord before them. And so God was moving mightily. After Joshua then, we have the book of Judges. We have that period of time and really it opens up and this opening verse of the book of Judges, if you just go to the first verse, it gives you really the whole context really of the whole book as they enter into a different season in their walk with God. And Judges 1 and 1 it says, now after the death of Joshua, the second great leader that we had looked at, that, that the children of Israel asked the Lord, who shall go up against the Canaanites first to fight against them? 
the whole context, really, we enter into a period of time. Who is going to fight for us? Who's going to fight our battles? We have had Moses. We have had Joshua. But now, Lord, who's going to fight for me? Who is going to fight for us in the valleys? Who's going to fight for us in the mountaintops? Who's going to go out against our enemies? And the reality of that, often we find ourselves just like the people in the time of the judges and the difficult times and the trials and the troubles. You can say in the depths of your heart, who's going to fight for us? Who's going to fight our battles? And we look ahead and the enemy's sort of hanging over the ropes with the towel saying, just, you know, throw the towel in, it's over. It's just finished. And so you're up against the reality of the intensity and the battles that a believer will face. And here is the whole essence, really, of the book. Who is bringing us the victory now? Who is going to give us the victory over our enemies? Who will come and to try and ensnare us and bring us back into slavery? Who will loose us from the fear of the enemy? How do we maintain the victory? Who will maintain our possession that you have promised? And so this is the believer's warfare, really. You know, the battle is, we, we walk a, a Christian life, a pilgrimage, but it's just not like that. Sure, it's not. It's just not. Wouldn't it be great if it was just like that? But is it, isn't the Christian walk, isn't, can I, is it more like, like that, isn't it? Or maybe more like that? <laughs> the valleys sometimes get deeper, and the, and the mountainside gets a little bit steeper. But yet it's a pilgrimage, it's a walk, it's life. Every Christian, whether we're born or saved just recently or we've been saved for years, we got to know that there's mountaintops under our valleys. But God is the God of the mountaintops. Listen, but He's still God in the valley. I may not feel that. I may not experience that. I, I may not feel the same as I am on the mountaintop. It's a different feeling, you know. You come in the church, there's a spring in your step. You look over and you see someone's in the valley and you go, hey, I'm on the mountain. Oh, what's wrong with them? And you forget what the valley's like, don't you? But your valley's coming up because the mountaintops are a point. And then it changes. But I've been doing well. I've been in a great season. Everything's been going great. The wind's under my wings, you know, I'm just about to fly. And then the, the season changes. Now you're going down into the valley. In the valley, in the valley, there's chariots of iron. You're always going to meet the enemy in the valley. That's where you'll meet him. You'll never meet him on the mountaintops. The mountaintops are for encounters with God, but the valleys are for encounters with the enemy. And so the believer has a warfare. It's a trinity of evil. The Bible talks of a warfare of worldliness, the flesh and the devil. We're up against something. The world, the flesh and the devil. It's a trinity, an unholy trinity of evil and wickedness. It's the world, the flesh and the devil. You know that, don't you? That's our battle. And so we see that in the Scripture it tells us clearly that we are wrestling not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, the powers of darkness, the demonic forces of hell. These are real encounters. This is not a figment of our imagination. We don't wrestle against the flesh and the blood, but we do wrestle. We're against something. There's spiritual opposition. There's forces that are against us. There's an array of, on these days, and we're talking about it just briefly, it's like it's a cage of unclean birds. There's been an unleashing of all the powers of darkness and hell all around us. We're up against something. We may not see it all or understand it all or have all the insights to it, but you know you're against it. Do you understand what I'm saying? You know you're fighting something. We're in a fight. Paul says we're going to fight a good fight. But we're wrestling against something. There's spiritual forces in darkness. There's wickedness in high places. There's agendas of the enemy. All around us, the whole strategy of the enemy. 
Friends, let me tell you, it's in every aspect of our society, but it is one antichrist system that's rising in these days. We are against something. And there's an array of ministries that are coming forth, bringing the highlight or highlighting spiritual wickedness, spiritual warfare. And then we have worldliness. We're against the world. We're actually against the world. Not against the people of the world. We're here to see them saved. But that world is not our friend. It is our enemy. If it was not an enemy, why would Jesus overcome it? He says, I have overcome what? The world. And yet today, it's not really seen as an enemy. And yet, friends, I believe with everything within me this morning as I preach to you, Yet the greatest weapon, the greatest weapon against the church of Jesus Christ today is not the devil or the demonic forces or even worldliness. And you can disagree, it's fine. But I believe that the greatest hindrance to the work of God today is the flesh. And yet, I don't see a whole array of new ministries dealing with the flesh. Do you? Do you ever see it? You know, the flesh ministry, crucifiers, or whatever name they want to make up. And so the flesh becomes the most effective and destructive work in the church of Jesus Christ today by far. And yet there's no ministries, very little books in any Christian bookshop that's going to deal with the flesh. And very little people, very few of us would say, boy, I'd like to read that book. It's not true. And yet the most effective weapon within the flesh, James tells us, is the tongue. And it's only that size. I'll tell you what he tells us about it. He says, the tongue is an unruly evil and it's full of deadly poison. If anything's going to destroy the work of God over many years of men that have sacrificed to build it, just something just below your nose and above your chin can destroy it in a day. It's full of deadly poison. It's real. How can out of the same mouth proceed blessings and cursing? James says, brethren, this can't be. It's just not right. You, you can't just say whatever you want because you think you can say it. Well, you can, but the consequences of that tongue will poison a body and ruin the work of God. Let me tell you something. And the devil had nothing to do with it. He had nothing to do with it. James says, if any of you seem to be religious, in other words, spiritual, but you can't Control that. You've deceived your own heart. And your whole religious experience is absolutely vain. Doesn't mean anything. Oh God, help us to put a guard on our tongues. So we face a war of worldliness, the flesh, and the devil. And in Judges chapter 1, we see Israel's great compromise. Just watch this, because there's many lessons for us to learn. In Judges 1 and verse 28, if you just look at that verse, in these two chapters, chapter 1 and chapter 2, uh, the writer is crossing, going forward and coming back. So to get the whole context of the book, he's going ahead and then he's coming back again. It can be a little bit confusing where the context of the verse is, but this is pre the whole fall down of Israel. So he moves a little bit further and says in Judges 1, 28, and it came to pass when Israel was strong, before Joshua died, they were possessing the land, they were dispossessing their enemy they were moving in. They were in victory. They were taking the ground. Every feet, every place the soles of their feet was landing upon. They were possessing. They were going forward in the name of Almighty God. And they were driving out the enemy. 
Somebody say amen. It's good to see the enemy driven out, isn't it? That's what God wanted them to do. But now they're strong. But then it says that they put the Canaanites to tribute. In other words, we've got a great idea. Instead of, you see, our fathers were really ruthless. They were a bit radical, a bit over the top, these old-time believers. Do you know what the world needs? Radical Christianity. It needs radical Christianity with the gospel of peace, not radical. You know, know, they're against anything radical. They'll be against radical Christianity. But no one will ever put a suicide vest on their back. No one will ever lift a sword. No one will ever lift a gun in the name of Jesus Christ. They'll preach the gospel with the power of God and the Holy Ghost. That is radical Christianity separated from that world. And so we thought then at this time, Israel, what we'll do is instead of destroying our enemy, we'll bring our enemy in and we'll get them to work for us. We can make the world work for us. We can be very clever and have new ideas and new ways, but instead of saying that's the world, that's the flesh, that's the devil, we'll not do that anymore. We'll make a compromise. So that's not really our enemy. Does this sound familiar? That's not really our enemy anymore. Actually, yes, we'll get them to work for us, but as they made that great compromise, and then it says these words, and did not utterly drive them out. So in other words, there's this idea that someone come up with, I don't know who it was, doesn't tell us, but there was a consensus of opinion that we are living in, can I just sort of put it in modern terms? Look, we're living in modern days. We have really advanced. We have moved forward. Now we can change things. Listen, I tell you what we need to do. The gospel needs some type of help, some type of some representation, just to make it acceptable in some way. But it's not a radical thing anymore. Let's drop repentance. Let's drop sin. Let's drop all those things. But let's make it more acceptable to the broader chorus of people and join it all together. And what have we done? We've lost the power and the blessing of God. And so this is what Israel had done. God chose Israel for this purpose. If you turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4, 35, Judges 1 says Israel was strong. They put the Canaanites to tribute and they did not utterly drive them out. Deuteronomy 4, this is what God said. God said something completely different to what someone had come up with in Israel. Deuteronomy 4.35. Remember Deuteronomy's after uh, the 40 years of wilderness. It's about a short period of time just before they go in to the great conquest of Canaan. And Deuteronomy 4 and 35 says, Not to thee it was showed that thou mightest know that the Lord he is God. There is none else beside him. Out of heaven he made thee to hear his voice, that he might instruct thee. And upon earth he showed you his great fire. Thou heardest his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved thy fathers, therefore he chose their seed after them, and brought thee out in his sight with his mighty power out of Egypt. Verse 38, this is what God wanted to do. To drive out nations from before thee that are greater and mightier than you. To bring thee in, to give thee their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore this day, consider it in your heart that the Lord, he is God in heaven above and upon the earth beneath. There is none else beside our God. Why did he bring them out? What would he show them? I brought you out and I will drive out nations that are greater than you. But Lord, we've got a great idea here. Instead of driving them out, We'll make some type of allegiance with them. And once they'd done that, they'd lost the power and the blessing of the Lord. In Deuteronomy 9 and 3, to follow this theme of driving out the enemy, Deuteronomy 9 and 3, this was God's idea, not man's. He says, Understand therefore this day that the Lord thy God is he which goeth before thee as a consuming fire. He shall destroy them. He shall bring them down before thy face. So shalt thou drive them out and destroy them quickly as the Lord has said unto thee. When you come into Joshua chapter 3, 
And when Joshua had that encounter with the Lord at Jericho, in Joshua chapter 3, if you turn over to it, verse 9, so the theme was carried through from Moses, by, from the Lord, right through into Joshua as they're going into this great conquest. In Joshua 3 and 9, Joshua said unto the children of Israel, Come hither, hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, said Here's God's words. Hereby shall ye know that the living God is among you. And that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hevites, the Pezzarites, the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Jebusites are all going to be driven out. That's how you know God's among you. The word to drive out is one Hebrew word, and it is Yarash, and it simply means by driving out previous tenants and possessing in their place. I really like that. Driving out previous tenants and possessing in their place. How many people believe today that we need to see the enemy driven out? That's God's plan. That's not man's idea. That's God's plan. You will drive them out. You walk in my way. You follow my word. You obey my word. You walk. You'll have the blessing of the Lord. And I will drive out nations even greater than you. It's amazing. Now the times have changed. The winds of change have come. Compromise on Israel's part. And the angel of the Lord that appeared unto Joshua just before Jericho reappears in Judges chapter 2. Now this angel of the Lord, I personally believe without any doubt that this angel is the pre-incarnate Jesus. What that simply means is this is the eternal son. Before he became flesh as a baby in a manger, when we use the term pre-incarnate, God's Son, Jesus, is eternal. He is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This God is one God, but they're co-equal and they're eternal. And here Jesus appears. He's in the old. He appears in Judges chapter 2, verse 1, and the angel of the Lord came. Now this meeting is with the same Jesus, pre-incarnate, but it's in a completely different context. The context in Joshua's day is he's going out. He's got a great battle ahead of him. Jericho's right before him. He knows this is impossible with the children of Israel to do this in their own strength. It doesn't tell us fully, but I believe that Joshua knows he's in a great battle. He's about to enter into the promised land. He knows he can't do it in his own strength. He sees that Jericho's straightly shut up. The walls, the everything about it. And he walks out that night. I believe he's just searching, looking for an answer from the Lord. And who appears but the angel of the Lord? Just Joshua, basically, I'm par- just going through the... But Joshua, I'm with you. And I'm come. And I'm going to fight your battle. And you're going to take Jericho. But now we come into Judges and now he reappears. And it says there in Joshua 2 and 1, And the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt. I brought you into the land which I swear unto your fathers and said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you'll make no leagues with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and, and their gods will be a snare unto you. Just listen carefully. These are powerful words. Because you're not walking in my way, because you're not fulfilling my word, because you've turned to your own way to try to do it your way, then what will happen is they'll be thorns in your side. Anyone ever got a scalp down their nail? Boy, you can't touch it. You lift. It's awful to have a thorn, isn't it? A thorn stuck in your flesh. In a spiritual sense, those things, as you begin, you go, you start to turn off that path. Those thorns begin to irritate you, those things of this world. And they become your thorns in the flesh. They become 
the joy that you once had, the, the joy of your salvation. Now these things are thorns. And not only that, but the gods of this world, they become your snares. In other words, it's going to affect your walk. You're walking along, and next minute the snare gets you around the ankle, and then you're falling, you're slipping. Because you're not walking in my way, and you've walked out of the way of my word, then that becomes a thorn to you, and it becomes a snare to you, and then we fall. You understand what's happening? So he says, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods will be your snares. And it came to pass when the angel of the Lord, verse 4, spake these words unto all the children of Israel. The people lifted up their voice. They wept. He called the name of the place, Bochin. And they sacrificed her unto the Lord. And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man unto his inheritance to possess the land. Can you see it? God just had told them, you haven't done what I've asked you to do. But yet in that, he says, There's going to be thorns. There's going to be snares. But yet they're going to enter in and possess the land. They're still going to push ahead anyway. Just let's go for it. Let's just pull ourselves together. We can do it. The folly of man without the blessing of God. Judges 1, if you turn back over, I'm just going back and forward. Verse 17, sorry, verse 19. We get a breakdown in this chapter. I'm just picking out Judah, particularly the royal tribe, if you like. But we see that they all went out to try and possess the land, and they could not. They weren't getting the victory. No matter how many times you can sing about the victory, if, if you in your heart and in your life know you don't have it, you know you don't have it. Are we understanding what I'm saying? I love these songs. I I thank God for these songs. We need to sing these songs. These songs are theologically sound and they're scriptural and they're right. And we need to sing them. But there's nothing worse than worshiping God with our lips. But our lives and our hearts are so far from him. And in the depths of it, it's not condemnation. But in the depths of it, what you're saying is, I want my words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart to be the same, acceptable in your sight. Isn't that right? And so, they went out, but in verse 19, you know, I love the first few words, and the Lord was with Judah. Let me tell you, friend, no matter even if you are weak this morning, you feel this morning, you've had an awful week this morning, you're looking back over a week of just failure, maybe thorns and snares. Can I tell you something? God's with you. How can that be? Because he never changes. He never changes. He loves us. He's merciful to us. He's not standing with a baseball bat waiting on you coming through the door. Here you come. He wants the best for us. He wants a life of victory, freedom from the thorns and the gods of this world. He wants us to live that life of victory and overcoming. He wants us to shine brighter in the darkest hour of mankind. He wants our oil and our lamps. He wants us to be full of the glory of God and the high praises of God in our lives. Yet He knows us and He's with us. It says that they were able to drive out the inhabitants of the mountain, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. Boy, when we're on the mountain, all things are possible to them that believe. But in the valley, valleys are different, aren't they? On the mountain, every promise in the book is mine. In the valley, I'm not going to the prayer meeting tonight because I don't feel like it. I couldn't go. Sure, look at me. Oh, is it just you? Or is it just me, is it, sir? It's hard. It's dry. And we have this thing that somehow we can believe some of the promises, but not all of them. We can believe the promises on the mountaintop, 
we can believe, but then we get down into the valley, but, well, you know, I've been thinking about this whole thing, and the miracles in the book of Acts. We get all theological, start to read books that would, oh, we're not too sure about the miracles now, and we're not too sure about the supernatural. Yes, I believe where the twos or threes are gathered, supernatural miracle happens that Jesus is in the midst. I believe that, but I don't believe that God can deliver the oppressed, heal the sick. Heal cancers, deliver those that are demon-possessed. Don't believe that God can fill me with the Holy Ghost, baptize me with fire and speak in other tongues. I believe it for some. No, we get very clever. But you don't just have to all speak in tongues. It's okay. Let's just extract ourselves and be selective. Oh. Now we're in the valley. And God's with Judah, the royal tribe. There's a hallelujah there are the people of praise. Can I tell you, friend, the God of the mountains is still the God in the valley? What is a valley? What is a valley? A valley, this is the definition, is a low area of land between two hills. That's the mountain. There's the valley. That's a low place. It's a low place. You'll experience, we experience low places in the Christian walk. Would you say amen? amen? Just encourage other, you know, let other people know that there's low places. Don't, don't try to pretend, you know, I just leap from mountain to mountain. You know, just there's valleys, isn't there? Isn't there valleys, saints? Ask the oldest believer in this house, they'll tell you there's valleys. Ask the youngest believer in this house, they'll tell you there's valleys. The wonderful thing about just getting saved is God extends the mountaintop for a time. But then the valleys come. But he's still the same God. They couldn't, they couldn't deliver the inhabitants or possess the valley for a reason. And the reason they couldn't possess the valley was not because of the people, but because there was chariots. The Bible says chariots of iron. Like God, do you think the chariots of iron are any problem to God? Had God changed? No. Why? Well, remember the chariots of iron at the Red Sea? Remember they all go through on dry land, the seas are up, and the people of God turn back, and then Pharaoh comes with all his chariots rushing into the Red Sea. Friends, are down there today. Tells us about Joshua in chapter 11. We'll not go there for time's sake, but when he went out and he fought against the kings and they had horses and there was chariots that were very many, that Joshua and the people of God, they burned their chariots with fire. The Lord was with Judah and they drove out the inhabitants of the mountain, saint, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley. They were stuck in the valley. They were stuck up against it. Who's going to fight for us now? It's a low time. We're spiritually low. We're low in power. We're low in all things. And yet we're up against the powers of darkness, the chariots of iron, the real, the strongholds of the enemy, spiritual wickedness. But we're at a low point. If I had the power that I used to have maybe a few months ago, I could take the chariots on, but not today. Who's going to fight for me now? Low times, valleys. You see, when you're up the mountain, what's the obvious? You see better. Don't you see better up the mountain? You see better. You feel better about getting up the mountain. It's not so great coming back down it. 
Mountaintops are times when God meets you and you meet God. Mountaintops. All throughout the Bible you'll find that mountaintops are encounters. They're all about encounters. Right back to Genesis 22, Abram laid his son Isaac on an altar up a mountain. And God appeared and revealed himself as Jehovah Jireh. It was up a mountain. Moses kept the flock. You know, I just thought about this over and over. Remember, where was he? At the backside of what? And you're going to say, well, where's the mountain? Well, the Bible says next, and he came to the mountain of God. He was at the backside of the desert, but he came to a mountain. He's about to meet God after 40 years. And God was about to reveal himself and commission him to go into Egypt. Victories happen at the mountains. Caleb said, Lord, give me these mountains. Great victories. Jesus himself was a man that went up the mountain alone to pray, alone to seek the Father. But the greatest mountain that he climbed, we heard so lovely this morning, was Mount Calvary. It all flows from Calvary. Revivals happen on mountains. Israel are backslidden. Elijah the prophet stands where on Mount Carmel. And there's revival. But the valleys are part of the Christian life. They're real. They come. They're low points. The Christian life of mountaintops and valleys. And on the mountains, God deals with us, doesn't he? On the mountains, God deals with us. He deals with things in our lives, issues in our lives. We're enjoying the presence of God. We see things clearly. He's dealing with parts of our heart. He's dealing with our character. He's dealing with our flesh. He's dealing with us in his mercy. We were filled and refilled and renewed and strengthened. He shows us things. He reveals things. The word of God is alive to us. It's coming fresh. Everything is quickened and moving and there's an anointing in in, in our personal times in our walk. Do you know what I'm talking about? These mountaintops are real. They're precious things. They're ordained of God for every individual in this room. God wants to meet with us. And in the mountain times, He deals with us. We hear His voice clearly. We have vision, spiritual sight. We know exactly where things are. We're able to discern much better. But it's different in the valley. Isn't it? It's different in the valley. We're so easy. Okay, I'm so easy. We're so easy to forget. Isn't that right? We're so easy. We're now enclosed about with hills. We're now going deeper down. It's darker. It seems as though it's a little bit more lonelier. It's a little bit more quieter down in the valley. And now we're walking down into the valley. And now we come up against the chariots of iron. I tell you, friend, the enemy always comes in the low point. In the low point. You're going to meet the enemy. You're going to meet the enemy. You're going to meet him in the valley. If you're going to meet him anywhere, you're going to meet him in the valley. You'll meet him at the low point. You know, ever heard the term, kick him when he's down? I don't know where it sprung up from Belfast. It probably did. But when the low point comes, that's when he's going to kick the hardest. And there's no mercy with our enemy. Oh, there's no mercy. 1 Samuel 17 says, Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together. Verse 2, they pitched by the valley of Elah. If there's a valley, there's two hills. Remember, what's a valley? It's the low point between two hills. You know you're sitting in a valley this morning? Physically, I mean. You know Balna Hinch is a valley? And often at the bottom of the valley, what do you find? What do you find at the bottom? What do you find? And Trevor, when we were in Nepal and we're driving along and 100 meters down, every time you look down, what was there at the bottom? A river. There's always a river in the valley. 
And some of those rivers were 700 meters down with about three inches out your window, I tell you. And yet at the bottom, there's a river. They pitched by the valley of Elah, set the battle in array against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. It's a low point between two hills. And what happened? And there came out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath. He was a very big fella. Where did he come? Where did they meet? Where did it happen? Is that all coincidence? No. The enemy met them in the valley. The Lord doesn't take kindly to the enemy saying, see your God, you maybe heard this voice, but see your God, your God is the God of the mountains. But I want to tell you something else about your God. See your God, your God's not the God of the valleys. Do you know God doesn't take too kindly to that? Do you know that's what the enemy says? Do you know what the enemy actually says that? Do you believe that? I'll tell you why I believe it, because it's in God's word. In 1 Kings chapter 20, we read there of a king called Ahab. Ahab, we all know, was a wicked king. He wasn't a good king. He'd done evil that was in the sight of the Lord. And we know just after the great revival with Elijah, we read this chapter. I find it a very profound chapter. There's a king called Ahab who's a wicked king. But in that time, in a spiritual sense with Israel, at a low point because of the king that they had, the enemy came at the low point. The king of Syria comes up against Israel. And when the king of Syria comes up against Israel, he says to Ahab, sends his messengers. This is what he said. You can read the whole chapter. No time's going. But he says, Ahab, i tell you what I want. I want you to give me your wives. And I want you to give me your children. I want to take the silver and the gold. And Ahab, of course, being an honorable man, and would never do that, says, you can have the wife and the kids and the silver and the gold. He's some boy, isn't he? But then the enemy, because you see, have you ever heard the term, if you give an inch, you'll take a mile? You never do deals with the devil. You never do compromises with the devil, just a wee bit. So the messengers come back again and says, no, I'll tell you what, we appreciate you saying that. I'm paraphrasing. But I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're not happy just with the wife and the kids and the silver and the gold. We want to come and we want to search all your houses and we want to rifle the whole place. What is he? He's come to steal, to kill, and destroy. What is he? A thief, isn't he? So then Ahab gets concerned. Ahab said, what are we going to do? He speaks to the elders of Israel and said, what are we going to do here? This guy, I think he's up to no good. The light turns on. And so the elders said, look, don't, don't give him an inch. Don't give him anything. But then at that time, a prophet of the Lord walks in. How we need a word from the Lord. How we need a prophet of the Lord. And he comes walking in and he says, listen, you're in a great strait here. You've got a great battle going on. Your enemies come up against you. Ahab says, don't you know it? He says, well, I'll tell you what you're going to do. God's going to give you the victory in this battle. Ahab, it profounds me. This is a real awesome chapter because it just blows you away. God's sovereign hand and work. He says, you're going to fight this battle. Ahab says, who's going to fight it? In other words, I hadn't even been walking right. Do you know what he said? The prophet says, you're going to get the princes of Israel. You know who, know who that is? You're going to get the young men. And the young men are going to fight this fight. Ahab says, well, who's going to order it? In other words, who's going to oversee it? The prophet says, you're going to oversee it. And so he puts the word out. Do you know that, remember Elijah in the cave? And, the, and he was feeling a bit sorry for himself. And then the Lord says, when remember he was saying, Lord, it's only me left. I'm the only one that's left for you. Remember he was rebuked. What did the Lord say? There's how many? 
7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal? Do you know that like, actually there was literally 7,000? Do you think that was just a figurative term? There was actually 7,000 that did not bow the knee to Baal in Israel. If you turn to 1 Kings chapter 20, I'll, I'll show you it just, I think a few of you don't believe me. But in 1 Kings chapter 20, now if you back in the chapter 19, we'll read the verse. In verse 18, the word of the Lord, yet I have, in 1 Kings 19, yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. God's got a remnant in the land, and he knows them by number. He knows exactly how many there are in the United Kingdom and Ireland this morning. By the very number. If you turn over to 1 Kings chapter 20. And it says, And behold, verse 13, There came a prophet unto Ahab, the king of Israel, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Has thy seen all this great multitude? I will deliver it into thine hand this day, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord. Ahab said, By whom? And he said, Thus saith the Lord, Even by the young men of the princes of the provinces. Then he said, Who shall order the battle? He said, Thou. Then he numbered the young men of the princes of the provinces that they were 232. And after then he numbered all the people, even all the children of Israel being. He's 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Do you know who they were? Friends, it was the young men and the princes of Israel. I tell you what, if ever there's an hour that this world needs to see a young band of men and women saved and full of the power of the Holy Ghost. Young people in this room, I tell you, God's looking for soldiers. He's looking for young men and women to rise up in this hour with a radical gospel full of the Holy Ghost and power. You know, anybody can follow the world. Sure, it's easy to go with the crowd. It's easy to blend them with the world. It's easy to laugh at their dirty jokes. It's easy to go along with the world, but the whole thing's going to hell as fast as it can. But it takes a man or a woman full of the Holy Ghost and power to stand up and say, I will follow Jesus. The princes, the young men and the women, 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal, will stand for Jesus. So the crowd Stand in the corner and laugh and mock and, t- and tee-hee and laugh and say, well, this is our way. This is the way we are going. We are going to go the way of the world. I tell you, the world, the flesh and the devil. And the devil is a thief and he'll destroy your life. Do you really believe that? I believe it with everything within me. Not only do I believe it, I've experienced the destructive power of sin and the devil. But I've also experienced the mercy the grace and the great delivering power of an almighty God. And so we find 7,000. Verse 23 of that chapter. And the servants of the king of Syria said unto him, Their gods are the God of the hill. Therefore they are stronger than we, but let us fight them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than them. In other words, the plain is the valley. We'll fight them, not on the mountains, but we'll take them down to the valleys. Verse 28, there came a man of God and spake unto the king of Israel and said, Thus saith the Lord, here's the word of the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord's the God of the hills, but he's not the God of the valleys. Therefore, God said, I tell you, you know, the enemy's pushing it all the way, isn't he? Isn't he pushing it all the way? I mean, he just doesn't give up. He knows his time is short. He's pressing it right to the very edge. He'll keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing. And the pressure's mounting. And it's a valley and it's a low point. And the chariots and all the apparatus of the enemy. But then God steps into the valley. Because he's not just the God of the hills, brothers and sisters. He's the God of your valley. Rivers flow in the low place, coming down from the testimonies of the past, coming down of the victories from God in the past, 
coming down from the great deliverances of God in the past. And so the river flows from the mountain. What does it bring? It brings the testimonies and the deliverances of God in past times. What God has done in the past, God will do it again and again and again and again because I am the God and I change not. So the river carries those testimonies into the heart of a young man called David as he's walking out into the battlefield against the giant drowning in the valley. And the river brings the reality and the testimony. This is the God that delivered Israel. Who is this Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? Let me tell you, friends, God gives us power in the valley over strongholds, over every apparatus of the powers of darkness. He said, I give you power over all the power of the enemy. And in Jesus' name, drive them out. Saints, there's a mountain up ahead. May it be a mountain of revival. May it be a mountain of victory on the victory. May it be a mountain of blessings. But let me tell you, friends, as we close this morning, that the blood has never lost its ancient power and it reaches to the highest mountain and it flows right down in to the lowest of valleys. God is the God of the mountains. And when your enemy says, He's not the God of your valleys. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. You got chariots. You got strongholds. You've got the powers of darkness. It's a low point. But then the river brings, the river brings the testimonies from the mountaintops, the refreshing power and presence. Of a living God. He's the God of the mountains. And he is the God. Of your valley. And mine. He will surely. Drive out the chariots. Before us. What a mighty God. We serve. Let's stand together this morning.